0: Thank you, <laughs> I guess. <clears throat> well, that baby picture, if you put a white beard on that, there's not much difference there, is it? <laughs> I was afraid that the, the red mullet was going to make an appearance, but I'm, I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> but uh, 50, man, feels good. All right, enough about me. we got something more important to, to look at today. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. <clears throat> because today I'm going to wrap up this short series of messages that I began two weeks ago where we've been looking at these other attributes of God that uh, when you really see Him, see, see these other attributes for what they are, it just makes His grace that much more amazing In the first message, we looked at just how awesome he is and how he knows everything. He owns everything and all that exists and all that God does and allows. He does so ultimately for his glory to be revealed. We learned that because he is so wise and because he does know everything, we don't get to counsel him or question how he governs. Because he owns everything, there is nothing that we can offer him that he doesn't already have, that he doesn't already possess, which which means two things. It means, number one, we can't bargain with him, and it means, number two, that God owes no one anything. He doesn't owe us. We also learned that our ultimate purpose in this world, the reason why you and I were created, is to bring honor and glory to his name. We were made to worship Him. But because we all are born under the curse of sin, we have all belittled God's name big time. We've done that by trying to put ourselves above Him, by claiming His stuff as our own. We do it when we think our way is better than His and we pursue our own glory in the building of our own kingdom rather than His. This is the great blasphemy of the universe. And then last week we began to look at, to see how God responds to this. His response to the rebellion and the belittlement of his name by something that he created. And there's two primary responses that God has to this, both which are unbelievably severe. And we looked at the first one last week, which is hell. Hell. We learn that hell is the complete absence of the presence of God, which means it is the complete absence of anything good. It is a place of horrific suffering that goes on forever. And as disturbing as the thought of hell is, it does display another attribute of God, and that is it displays the attribute of His justice. Justice means to make a wrong right. It means that God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. The great blasphemy has to be paid for, otherwise God would not be just. And I talked about how most people's response to this whole idea of hell has primarily been That they can't seem to accept the fact that a supposed loving God would allow something like that to, to happen to some that he has created. They say that God wouldn't do that. It's not right. It's not fair. And then I said that the problem with that is that if we think the punishment is too harsh that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, then what we are saying is the crime isn't that big of a deal. The glory of God isn't that big of a deal if hell is too harsh a response to the belittlement of it. And so then we've just come full circle by belittling God's name all over again by questioning how he responds to the belittlement of his name. To claim God wouldn't do such a thing when he says over and over and over again in his word that he does is to just slap him in the face. We're telling God that he doesn't know what he's doing. The correct response to hell should be how big and mighty and glorious and worthy must God be that hell is the just response to the rebellion against him. For hell to be so horrific reflects just how worthy God must be to be worshipped and glorified. The horrors of hell are an echo of the infinite worth of God. You want to hear something kind kind of neat? You know, last week I said, you know, why am I preaching such a heavy message? And I said, well, it's obvious I'm not trying to grow the church Because if you're going to look up 10 steps on how to grow a church, preaching a message on the severity of hell would not be included in one of those steps. We had a baptism in the first service this morning. Because at the end of the message in the 830 service, a lady came down in the front and said she wanted to join the church and be baptized. And so I love it when God goes, oh, you think you know? Well, watch this. So awesome. I mean, just the way that he talks to people and reaches people through ways that we don't even expect is just what he does. Thankfully, hell is not the only response that God has to our sin and rebellion. There's another response that we're going to look at today, and it is also extremely severe. And for it, we're going to look at a text in Isaiah 53. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read the word of the Lord. We're going to start in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come now and just take the truth in your word of what we are looking at today and you make it so real to us, God, that it does something supernatural. That it renews our hearts. It transforms our mind. Lord, I'm praying for freedom to be released in this place this morning. I'm asking for salvation. I'm asking for repentance. I'm asking for our lives when we leave here just to become a natural response of worship to realizing what you have done. Lord, I ask this according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been looking at these other attributes of God, but there's another attribute that I haven't mentioned that can't be ignored. The one attribute of God that we cannot afford to discount is the attribute of His holiness. Just how holy God is. The word holy encapsulates several meanings when it comes to God for one it means he is absolutely flawless pristine and perfect there is no blemish imperfection or weakness in him it means that he is so set apart so other than anything else that is that there is nothing that even comes close to being compared to him how holy is he Well, the intensity of his holiness is so strong that anything or anyone that is less than the same intensity of that same holiness, if it it even tries to approach God or come into his presence, it'll immediately be destroyed. See, the closest thing we have to describing the intensity of God's holiness would be the intensity of the sun's heat. What would happen if something tried to approach the surface of the sun if it wasn't as hot as the sun? It would be destroyed. It would disintegrate, of course. Well, in the same way for anything not as equal as God's holiness to come into contact with him, into his holy presence, it would be like a piece of tissue paper coming into the contact with the surface of the sun that's how intense his holiness is we see this illustrated in many different ways in the old testament how anything deemed holy if someone was to approach it or touch it they would die but the book of revelation contains a passion, a passage that shows us I believe just how intense his holiness really is it's in chapter 4 where it describes what's going on in heaven right now And it says there's these four creatures that 24-7 are just constantly flying, revolving around the throne of God, and it describes them as each having six wings, and they each have a head that resembles a, a certain animal. And then it says that they are, quote, full of eyes in front and behind, and full of eyes around and within, and so other than their six wings and their head, the rest of these creatures is made up of nothing but a bunch of eyes. It'd be pretty frightening to see one of these in, in person. But I think what that means is that they are so full of eyes, it means that there is nothing they don't see. Nothing escapes their gaze. You think you're going to be able to sneak up on a creature like that? Not hardly. Because they see everything. And the fact that they are constantly... Flying around the throne of God means that there is nothing about God that they don't see. They see everything there is to see about Him. And seeing all there is about God, there is only one response that they have to this over and over again. And that is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Like I'm seeing everything there is about God, but I'm telling you right now, He's holy. He's holy. They don't say He's loving, even though He is. They don't say He's powerful, even though He is, or merciful, even though He is. It's just that the intensity of His holiness is so strong, it overpowers everything else. So in light of all that, Think of what mankind's situation was. We are deserving of God's wrath because of our sin and rebellion and we are unable to approach Him because we are far from that perfection and holiness that He requires. And there's nothing that we can do. No amount of good deeds that we could ever pile high enough to equal that same level of perfection. It's a very dire situation. One that is impossible for us to do anything about on our own but there's a problem with that because you see God made a promise through Abraham that he would have a people for himself who would partner with him and reflect his glory on earth he promised that they would be a people whose guilt was removed whose sin was forgiven who would be given the right to be called his very own sons and daughters. But how can that be if we are guilty of belittling him as much as we have? How can that be if we are so far from the perfection and the holiness that is required to, to come into contact with him and be in his presence? It, I mean, it seems to be a huge problem, and it is, but God made a promise, and his promises never fail to be met but how could he fulfill that promise without compromising his justice justice requires that our sin and rebellion be punished be paid for but if the justice of hell that we looked at last week was carried out on us then we would not be able to be that people that he desired to have And if we are to worship God, if that is what we are made to do, hell is not going to produce that because of what we learned last week, that nobody celebrates justice when it's being served to them. Nobody thanks the cop for riding the ticket or the judge for handing down the sentence. What we worship, what we give thanks for is mercy. So how could God be both merciful and just at the same time? it will require him to come down to the earth that he created to become one of us in the person of Jesus. Being fully human qualified Jesus to act as our representative. And so in order to fulfill his promise to have a people for himself, that sin had to first be paid for. It, it had to be punished So Jesus would come and stand in our place as our representative to take that punishment for us. And late at night, in a grove of olive trees, we find him praying. He knew that the time had come for his purpose to be fulfilled. And he brings three other of his closest disciples to pray with him. He walks a little ways from them and falls on his face and prays to God Now he's gone away and spent time in prayer many nights before but this night is is different this night he is so distraught that droplets of blood begin oozing from the capillaries in his forehead and praying to the father he says if there be any other way let this cup pass from me what he meant was, Father, if there be any other way to remove the sin of your people, if there be any other way for them to, meet, to be made right, any other way for, for your mercy to be extended, for your promise to be fulfilled, let the cup of your wrath that I'm about to drink go somewhere else. But deep down he knew that there was no other way. There was no plan B. This had been the plan all along, and nothing else, no other way would solve the problem. And so he ends his prayer with, yet not my will, but yours be done. He walks back to the three disciples and finds them asleep. He wakes them up and urges them to remain vigilant goes away and prays some more, and after a while he comes back again and finds the disciples asleep again. This time he wakes them up and says, it's time. Now it begins. Torch-carrying mob arrives to arrest Jesus, led by Judas, one of his own disciples. Judas walks up to Jesus, kisses him on the cheek, and Jesus says, Judas, you betray me with a kiss? You sure this is the way you want to do this? Peter, who had already been rebuked twice in the last hour and a half, decides he needs another. And so he pulls out his sword and tries to prevent Jesus from being arrested. And in the and chaos, ends up cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest. It's pretty interesting that Peter wants to fight everybody here. But just three hours later, he doesn't want to fight anybody. Jesus calms the situation by walking over and performing one last miraculous healing. He picks up the ear off the ground of the servant and restores it back in its place. And he looks over at Peter and he says, put your sword away, Peter. This is not how it's going to go down. No one's taken my life. I'm giving it. They take Jesus to the house of the high priest where all the other religious leaders, Pharisees, had had gathered and they, they conduct six different trials, three of which were illegal under Jewish law. A couple of the Pharisees bring this up. And they're quickly shut down because they've been wanting Jesus for a long time, wanting to shut him down, and they finally have him now, and they're they're not going to let anything prevent this. They're not going to let him go. And at each trial, Jesus is beaten, he is spit on, he is mocked. At one point, they blindfold him, and everyone takes turns punching him in the face and then saying, if you're such a great prophet, then prophesy and tell us who it was that hit you. Jesus was being tried in an illegal court, being accused of made up charges. This was the most corrupt, deceptive, illegal act that had ever occurred in Jerusalem. And he had every right to call them out on this, he had every reason to defend himself, every reason to prove his innocence. But look again at verse 7 of the text that we read. In Isaiah 53, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Why didn't he say anything? Because he had entrusted himself completely to the Father. And knew that whatever the Father was allowing had to be done. And I think there's a lesson in that for us. We're always claiming our right's this and my right that. Just because you have a right to something doesn't necessarily mean you have to act on it every time. Sometimes we just leave things in God's hands. And trust Him. The way Jesus did. Since one of the charges was that he was claiming to be king, they decided to give the king a crown to wear. So they find these, this group thorns, these vines that had long, sharp thorns on them, and they weave them into the shape of a crown and, and press it down against his head. And just to be even meaner, they take a stick and begin beating him over the head with it, driving those thorns deeper into his scalp. And then they take a purple robe and put it on him and bow down, mocking, Hail, King of the Jews. Pilate, the Roman governor who was appointed to oversee this little outpost of the Roman Empire, he wants nothing to do with this. The religious leaders bring Jesus to him because they couldn't sentence anyone to death without Rome's approval. And Pilate doesn't believe Jesus has done anything deserving death. And so he thinks he can shame Jesus enough or make him suffer enough that the, the people would accept that. And so he orders Jesus to be scourged. So he's taken into another courtyard and he's stripped. His hands fastened to a wooden post and severely whipped with the cat of nine tails. Which was nine leather straps that were all bound at one end by a handle. And within each leather strap, there would be pieces of metal, bone, and other sharp objects woven into it. And that was done for the sole purpose of just tearing as much skin as possible. And so they commenced to just shredding Jesus' back and sides till his skin hung in ribbons and created just this mangled, bloody mess of a man. Pilate then presents him before the people again and says, Here's your man. Now what do you want me to do? And to his surprise, the crowd was not satisfied. Some of the very same ones who just a week later cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord when Jesus entered Jerusalem are now shouting, Crucify him! And Pilate finally relents. The art of crucifixion was developed by the Romans over a period of time as the best way to incite fear into those that they ruled. It was the most effective way at that time to keep people from ever wanting to to rebel against them. It was really more of a form of torture than it was a form of execution. In fact, the word crucifixion is where we get our word excruciating from. It is the most severe kind of pain imaginable. It was designed so that the person being crucified would would slowly suffocate. Sometimes it would take days. Because they made it to where they would hang in such a way from the nails in their hands and in their feet to where... Their arms would be raised above their head that caused the diaphragm to be constricted where they weren't able to inhale, take in a breath of air. But the body, when it can't breathe, it it involuntarily has to do something, does everything it can to try to get that oxygen. And the only way for it to do that would be for the person to push down on the nails in the feet or pull up on the nails in the hand to get them just high enough to release that diaphragm to where they could take in just enough air or to say a few words before they slump back down again. You can just imagine how tiring and painful that would be over the course of hours and hours of doing that back and forth and eventually got to the point where they no longer had the strength to pull themselves up and they would suffocate. As if that wasn't enough, the Romans decided that they needed shame involved. And so they say, let's strip them naked and hang them in a public place in a high traffic area so that every low life imaginable would come by and spit at them and mock them and make a spectacle of it. And so the shame of the spectacle, along with the excruciating death involved, will keep anyone from ever thinking about rebelling against us. So Jesus is taken just outside the city gate to an area called the Skull and he's nailed to a wooden cross and raised up high for everyone to see. He has said just a few days before, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And he's lifted up on that cross Men and women spitting on him, mocking him, quoting scripture at him as his lungs begin filling up with blood and a thick fluid starts forming around his heart. The scourging would have left his back just one giant open wound with all those nerves exposed, pulling himself up to be able to breathe or talk with that back, that, that sore would just be rubbing against the the wood of that post I mean just imagine what that must have been like you've got these searing pains just shooting up and down his arms and his legs like electric shocks and the throbbing in the hands and the feet of the the nails being pierced all the way through the wound in his back constantly rubbing against that rough wood and he's still wearing the crown of thorns which at this point would have caused massive swelling His face has been beaten and and bruised and it says that even his beard was ripped away from his face. And he's baking there on that cross hanging in the noonday sun. You want to know what God thinks of sin? Sin? that. That's what he thinks of it. At one point it goes completely dark in the middle of the day and one of the Roman soldiers looks up at Jesus and says, uh oh. Maybe this truly was the son of God. Jesus raises himself up enough to take in enough air to declare and announce the three most profound words ever announced in history, it is finished. Which means the purpose for which he came had been accomplished. And then he utters his final words, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he says that to the Father, even though he knows that because of the sin that was now on him, that communication, that relationship, that fellowship, that connection he had had with the Father for eternity was gone. There was a separation that had never existed before. And then Jesus slumps down one last time not to come up again because his heart struggles becomes slower and slower as it works to pump through that thick cardiac fluid and his lungs are now completely full of blood and his organs shut down, his breathing stops. And Jesus dies on the cross, all alone, hanging between heaven and earth, completely cut off from the Father and the Spirit. He dies as the ultimate orphan, the rejected, the punished. And at that moment, the earth just shakes violently and the veil of the temple rips in two from top to bottom. This is God's other response to the rebellion and the belittlement of his name by something he created. This is how God took this guilt of those that he wanted for himself placed them on his innocent son and poured out his wrath and he did it in an act of justice that would change history forever back to Isaiah verse 8 says by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. I mean, essentially saying the people at that time had no idea what was going on on that cross in that moment. And I love that line, to whom the stroke was due. Every stroke of God's wrath that Jesus absorbed was due for us. But he took it as our representative so that we wouldn't have to in the first part of verse 10 says but the lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief that sounds a little twisted doesn't it god was pleased to do that he took pleasure in this yeah he took pleasure in the fact that justice was fully served on our sin he was pleased with the fact that that his promise was now able to be fulfilled and he was pleased in the fact that that his love was being displayed in the most incredible way possible and he was able to take pleasure in all that because he knew that this was not the end of the story because in just three more days victory would finally be realized in full as he raised his son back to life and that's what it's talking about there in the rest of verse 10 where it says if he would render himself as a guilt offering He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. God says, I will allot him a portion with the great because he interceded because he was identified with the transgressors. Jesus' death on the cross served the justice issue. Our sin was paid in full. It was punished. And at the same time, mercy was extended because that is what God offers to all who believe Jesus is our only hope. But what about this whole issue of being holy enough to be able to approach and be accepted by God? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you trust Jesus as the only way for you to be made right with God, the great exchange happened happens jesus gets all the guilt of your sin and rebellion and it is done away with because of what he did at the cross and in return you get as a free gift of his grace the holiness and perfection that he requires it's not something you can produce or achieve or own on your earn on your own it is something given by god as a gift of his grace you're given that perfection, that righteousness that is required to come into his presence. And so can you see what I mean by how all these attributes of God just, just magnify his grace all the more and makes it that much more amazing? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. What we deserve Is everything, the hell that we looked at last week, that's what every single one of us deserve. That's why Ephesians 2, 3 says, we were children of wrath, of God's wrath, just like the rest. And then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And it's because of that grace and mercy we can now worship him. No matter what our circumstances that are going on in our life, no matter if life is treating us fair or not, no matter what difficulty we face or the condition of our health, the condition of our emotional state, we can worship God because of what he has done for us through Jesus. Last week I said nobody's writing songs about justice when it served on them. But we do write songs about mercy. Songs like, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Or songs like, and when I think that God, his son not sparing Sent him to die. I scarce can take it in that on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. How great thou art! Or songs like, My chains are gone, I've been set free, my God, my Savior. Has ransomed me, and like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your amazing, amazing grace. It is powerful. It is what changes us. And God, I pray the power of it will be at work even now to change somebody in here. Lord, it has the power to set free, it has the power to heal, it has the power to calm, it has the power to encourage and to strengthen. And to give hope. So Lord, I pray, God, your grace, your mercy would do that. for we are so undeserving of it. We don't deserve anything but your wrath. I thank you that through Jesus, you have given us your mercy instead. God, I pray that we will leave here, Lord, in our lives just reflecting our gratitude. For what you have done, Lord, that our lives would show that we are the people of the cross, that we are the people that you had always desired to have for yourself. So, Holy Spirit, would you come and just have your way in our hearts now. Do what only you can do. I pray that you would change the course of someone's life for eternity draw us closer to you, Lord. Increase our affections for you. That our affections for you be greater than the affections of anything else that this world has to offer. So, Lord, come. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to spend the rest of our time just worshiping God, doing what we